ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal people from regional and remote communities all over Australia are considering what the voice to Parliament might mean for them and if they want it at all. Today in Australia Wide, we're going to take a litmus test of what people are saying in some of Australia's most remote communities and how the debate about the referendum is affecting Indigenous people. In our, our children come home, they talk about the different attitudes that other children, non-Indigenous children, come with. Our children's become a target that they, they don't really know what's, what's really going on. See, parents of these children, it's learned behaviour in the home. And we hear from international tourists watching the debate unfold during their travels. Let's face it, they were here before us, a long time before Captain Cook arrived. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. Campaigning on both sides of the voice debate is on the final stretch. Many are turning their eyes to the remote corners of our country where Indigenous people are experiencing disadvantage. In Arakoon on Queensland's Cape York, leaders hope a voice to Parliament will help improve the lives of locals. Baz Ruddock visited the region and spoke to people about how life could change in Arakoon for the better. It's voting day in Arakoon and cars and minibuses are dropping off community members to have their say in the voice referendum. Why can't everybody put hands together and we can start changing this community around? Pre-polling for The Voice took place over two days in the town's community centre. Personally, I don't know what referendum means, but it's all the same to me. But I hope this is going to be a change, yeah, for everyone in the community or around Australia, I reckon. The Aboriginal community of about 1,400 is remote. On the western side of Cape York, it's more than 800 kilometres northwest of Cairns. The Arakoon Shire Council has backed a voice to Parliament. Kerry Tamoy is the Mayor. I think the voice is very important if we're successful with the referendum. We're going to be recognised in the Australian Constitution. We're going to have our voices directly heard by ministers and government officials. You know, I think one of the things that we really, really have an issue with is the amount of funding that flows into community every year and how that's being spent. In recent years, the community of Arakoon has been held up as an example of entrenched disadvantage, with widespread unemployment, social unrest and some of the worst housing in the state. In early 2020, more than 250 people fled the town after several homes were burned during unrest caused by the stabbing death of a man on New Year's Day. Richard Onangaya has called the community home for most of his life. He says the town is now healing. Well, I think Arakun changed a lot, you know. Things different now, you know. We had, like, family problems and stuff like that. Now they're all coming back together again, you know. Yeah, healing process, you know. We can call it like that, you know. He voted yes in the referendum in the hope it helps empower locals. We want somebody from here, from the community, not someone else who's sitting down in Cairns, Townsville or Brisbane. That's, that's the way I see it, you know. We want someone from here. Well, we, we, we got younger people here, you know. They're the people, you know. They're, they're, they're the future now, you know. I see you leaders. In 20 years' time or 30 years' time, what do you, wanna, what do you want Arakoon to look like? I want it to become a like, city, you know, like little township. We got Weeper there, and Weeper's a big town, you know. So we want this place to be more bigger, you know, more houses, maybe more cafes, you know, people running their own business and stuff like that here. 
we should be running our own thing, you know. A short distance away, Aileen Pamtunda paints at the Women's Arts Centre. She's waiting for a blue card that will allow her to work in the school. I always love all the children with all my heart. She has seen social disunity in Arakoon ebb and flow. I'm thinking about myself and the children in this community because most people are drinking. Every time when I see people, you know, fighting on the street, it's really sad for me. We got now elderly people to stop, you know, the people are fighting. I don't walk around on the streets when they fight. I always stay home. Kempo Tamoy is a first-term councillor on the Arakoon Shire Council. He says the community is special. A lot of people here are very, very tied to their country, where they're from, you know, where their you know, mother's mother's from, where their mother's father's from. People have this connection to the country that when they're brought together under the, you know, banner of fighting for land rights or fighting for your country, you'll find that they are a force to be reckoned with. They do have loud voices and, and our ancestors have stood up against giants. For the town to succeed, he says there needs to be more done to improve health outcomes and employment prospects. The big issues that I know I see every day is uh, declining health. Our old people are you know, passing away when they're younger. Our young people have issues that you know, prevent them from physically going out and achieving. If I could snap my fingers and make it happen, I'd just create jobs out of the blue. Not, not like just cleaning jobs or um, you know, jobs that pay low wages. A lot of the jobs that people work here, they tend to stagnate. There's no, there's no opportunity for them to grow. If I could make it so, I'd have jobs where your career grows as well as your personal development. What I want most is for this community to become a place where people want to come here, you know? People enjoy living here. A community that's happier, that's healthier, where everyone wakes up with a purpose. The mayor says if the voice fails, the community will advocate for a treaty. The next thing that we're looking at is treaty, and we've already, you know, advised Brisbane and we've already advised Canberra that this is what our people are, are looking at, yeah, treaty. That was Arakoon Mayor Kerry Tamoy ending that story from Baz Ruddock. Many Aboriginal communities in regional Queensland have histories steeped in complexity, stemming from their establishment as either Christian missions or government reserves, where thousands of Aboriginal people were forcibly relocated in the early to mid-1900s. And their complexities have all been coming to a head as campaigning for the voice referendum ramps up. Connor Byrne has this story from Cairns. Aboriginal people in regional communities are considering what the voice might mean for them and if they want it at all. Here are some of the hopes, dreams and concerns they have should the voice fail or succeed. Wanda Gibson is in Hope Vale, 200 kilometres northwest of Cairns, painting the moment when an elder made peace with Captain James Cook following a dispute when Cook took sea turtles without permission. So this is one of it about Captain Cook coming to Australia and he wanted to spear our men and the little man said no. He broke the spear and told him no we don't want bloodshed and that's the way how we wanted to everybody to be equal not the Aboriginals one side and white people the other and 
it is still going on, the racism, and that should stop. In Yaraba, 10 kilometers east of Cairns, Reverend Father Les Baird helps young men get on their feet. He's praying for a yes vote. I believe that a voice to parliament is really critical because we have never had any voices like decisions and policies and laws have been made about indigenous people in Australia, but we have not had an input into those decisions that were made in, in government policies or in, um, in laws that has been enacted across the country, you know. And, um, and it's going to give us a <clears throat> greater insight into what's written into the Constitution. Kevin Neal says there can be up to 10 people living in his house in Yarraba all at once. I think Yarraba just need more housing, you know. I feel like we're all overpopulated here. Like even at my home, like I got all my children and children starting to look for partners and all that and you know like very overcrowded. And Darren Miller says Yarraba's housing situation is holding it back. We've got to make sure that things like housing where the kids can get a decent sleep, where you have all the facilities in your house, where you grow your kids up in a healthy manner you know. Yarraba Mayor Ross Andrews says lobbying on behalf of an Aboriginal shire can be a challenge. I guess the challenge for us is government uh, listening to our issues, taking our issues seriously around what's best for our community. Because First Nations people and First Nations community really need that support, trying to build a, a really good community, you know, for our people. Nima Andrews is worried about the culture created at school for her five children. You know, our children come home, they talk about the different attitudes that other children, non-Indigenous children, come with. Our children's become a target that they, they don't really know what's, what's really going on. See, parents of these children, it's learned behaviour in the home. In Wurrabinda, 140 kilometres southwest of Rockhampton, traditional owner Michelle Leisha says she's voting no because she wants treaty before the voice. Truth telling needs to be the first, the foremost first, and then we can look at talking, coming at the table and um, discussing. If Gangaloo elder Steve Kemp knew for sure the 24 representatives on the advisory body would be democratically elected, like a normal election, that would sway him to a yes. On one hand, yes, and on one hand, what's it going to get us? So I'm, I'm sort of undecided. I'll probably make up my mind on the day when that happens. Loretta Hill is also undecided. My head is saying yes, because the emotional attachment of we're not going to get this chance in my lifetime, my head is saying no because within that constitution, the wording needs to be a little bit precise and also the consultation with grassroots level. What does this mean for my community? Back in Hope Vale, Wanda Gibson says the voice to parliament could be as significant a moment for the nation as that historic resolution. This changes everything through medical things, through education through a lot of things that someone should be there to deliver that to the government. That was Wanda Gibson from Hope Vale, 200 k's northwest of Cairns, ending that story from Connor Byrne. And finally, in our whip around the country, we're going to go to the Northern Territory. International tourists visiting one of Australia's most iconic spots, Uluru, spoke to our reporter Oliver Gordon about what they thought about the referendum on a voice to Parliament. Let's face it, they were here before us. A long time before Captain Cook arrived. So they deserve to be able to speak in their own country. And I, I think that, as I said, I think these people, the indigenous people, deserve to have a voice there. 
and uh, it doesn't look like the referendum is going to pass. What do you think the international reaction would be, say, in your country in Ireland? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Did we even hear about it? Because I didn't hear about it until I came here. Uh, I arrived here on September 26th, and the first I heard about it, I saw big notices. Yes, yes, yes. And that was the first I heard about it. So I don't know. Did people in Ireland hear about it? Oh, it's a definite, isn't it? Is it not what should happen? Does it really need a referendum? Should it not just be already happening? Because how do, how do you deal with that population that isn't getting, whether it be um, rights, whether it be healthcare, what it is, how do you get that information without having those Indigenous people there speaking with their voice? I heard that there is a big vote this weekend in Australian politics, a referendum. Uh, I didn't hear of it, but I saw when we drove around down the road, vote yes, vote no. I guess that's what it's all about. What do you think of the idea of a voice to parliament uh, that would advise our federal parliament on policies that affect Indigenous people? Good idea or bad idea? Good idea. Why do you think it's a good idea? Because they also live here, so everybody has to have a voice. What do you think uh, the international reaction would be if, say, Australia doesn't pass this? I, I really don't know, because in the Netherlands we never heard of this, so I don't know if there would be any re reaction, because for us it's so far, far away. Oliver Gordon speaking to tourists at Uluru in the Northern Territory. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio. Commercial diving is not for the faint-hearted. It's an occupation with plenty of potential hazards. For a start, they work at depths few people ever get to see and use power tools like chainsaws and arc welders while they're underwater. Training up the next generation of commercial divers is instructor Steve Clark, who operates at Beauty Point on Tasmania's north coast. Our reporter Sarah Abbott recently caught up with Steve on what was the last day of training for many of his students. All right, diver three, ready for cross checks. <laughs> diver one, ready for cross checks. Yeah, go on. Oh, good Tommy. Yep, all good. Good job. Good diver one. Good diver one. Steve, you've just finished up instructing part of the commercial diving course you teach. How long is the course and what does it involve? So there's a number of different sections to the course. Um, each section takes roughly 20 days, so about four weeks. That's a mixture of theory and practical. So we have part one, which is their scuba component, where we, we basically teach them the fundamentals, if you will, the procedures of being a commercial diver. Then we move them from that into what you've just seen, which is our surface supply component, where we teach them working techniques, tools and safe procedures in relation to these components. We use tools, power tools, hydraulics, pneumatics. We show them how to weld. Um, we don't turn them into experts. If you will, we give them their provisional licence, then they have to go out and over a number of years they'll become uh, full professionals. There's a third component which these young people are going to move on and start next week, which is level three. So section three is referred to as the offshore component. It gives you a licence which allows you to work in the offshore oil, gas, associated uh, industries. 
that's deep water, decompression diving, wet bells, baskets. So they learn all of that. So by the time if they take all three, they're basically a fully qualified air diver. In terms of the sort of people who sign up, is it largely tradies who want to do something a bit more specialised or is it just kind of people from all walks? That's an interesting one. Historically, it used to be predominantly tradesmen, so you'd say 80%. These days, it's probably about 20% of tradesmen. And definitely since COVID, uh, we have people who have always thought about it and have been putting it off because, you know, oh, it would be silly to try this and that. So we get a real diverse selection of people who come in and try it. Not everybody stays, but the people who stay into it are the people who are prone to a more adventurous, outside kind of lifestyle. They're not the people you'll find sitting in an office. Okay. Do your checks, check the handpiece, make sure there's no leak from the handpiece. No leaks, good flow from the end of the rod. Beautiful. When you're ready, put your visor on. What's your name? Uh, Victoria. Victoria, where are you from? I'm from New Zealand. And you've come here especially for this course then? Yes, I have, yep, doing part one, two and three, so, yeah. Oh, all parts? Yes, yeah, yeah, so doing all of them, so, yeah. Does it feel like a bit of a milestone completing um, part two? It does. I think completing part two is really cool because you're actually able to go out and work properly in the industry, um, kind of and be an be actual commercial diver and work in construction and that kind of thing, so, yeah, it definitely allows you to kind of go out and make some real money. Have you had this course in your sights for ages or did you kind of just spontaneously go, yeah, that's, that sounds cool? Um, oh, so I finished up school and I didn't have any qualifications, so this to me was, yeah, it's pretty wicked to be able to um, learn so much in a short amount of time and you get really, really good um, help here, like with the instructors, they can really, yeah, really teach you well and, um, and you're able to go out into the industry and make, make a lot of money, you know, more than you probably would... Um, you know, doing retail or something, yeah. I also like being outside and that, so, yeah. Looking forward to the next section then? Yes, I am, yeah. It'll be cool, different place, somewhere new diving, um, so, yeah, which will be awesome. All right, well done, guys. That's it. Woo! Right. Hearing them breathe underwater gives me the bends. Oh, amazing. And that was Victoria who was talking to our reporter Sarah Abbott on Tasmania's North Coast. This weekend Australia votes on the voice to parliament. Whether it's a yes or a no, this referendum will change our nation. Sunday morning, join me, Raph Epstein. And me, Frank Kelly. Be part of a national conversation about where Australia goes from here. With analysis and opinions from people involved in the campaigns and voters from across Australia. The Voice, your vote with Fran Kelly and Raph Epstein. Sunday morning from 8.30 on ABC Radio and the ABC Listen app. Dating can be exhilarating at the best of times and tricky and confidence crushing at the worst. For neurodivergent people, this relationship minefield can prove to be all the more treacherous. But in regional Victoria, neurodiverse speed dating events could bring people together to create new connections, romantic or otherwise. This story from our Southwest Victoria reporter, Jane Bell. 
Like many other guys in their mid-30s, Sam Martina wants a girlfriend. But, unlike some others, Sam, who lives in Warrnambool on Victoria's southwest coast, has autism. I've seen that show Love on the Spectrum. As you could see from that, uh, figuring out stuff to say can be um, tricky. They could even be asking someone out for a coffee or a drink. A few years ago, I remember the, um, liking the woman I was talking to, wanting to uh, ask her out, and I thought, okay, what, are the, what, what do I say now? I, my brain went right back to high school when the kids would ask, will you go out with me? And, but that was all I had in my brain, and I was just stuck. He's often felt very anxious around women didn't even recognize it as anxiety because it seemed worse than other anxieties. It just, I thought, okay, this is some sick feeling in my stomach. And I didn't want to ask about it because people were very convinced I I didn't have uh, autism. So I think the answer would have just been to tease me a bit and then say, oh, you'll be fine. Sam has organized a neurodiverse speed dating event in Warrnambool where participants can meet others who might be on the same wavelength. There's snacks, a crash course on communication and making small talk, and people are handed slips of paper with prompt questions to help the conversation flow. Social worker Kate Dancy is helping facilitate the event, and she tells the 14 or so people attending to focus on enjoying the night. Let's cherish this opportunity to celebrate neurodiversity, to break down barriers and to build connections based on genuine understanding and acceptance. So it's not about finding a match, we all know that. It's about celebrating the beautiful tapestry of the human mind and making new connections. Among those at the event is Nicole Putt. The 37-year-old lives with an acquired brain injury from a traffic accident that happened when she was 16. This is her first time speed dating. And I haven't had her or been in a relationship for a while, so I thought I might as well get out here and see what actually is out here and who I can actually meet up with. I can't complain if I don't try. Meanwhile, 23-year-old Jack McDonald has high-functioning autism. He says dating can be complicated for neurodivergent people. Sometimes your neurodivergence can get in the way of being able to express yourself properly. Like you might have like a nervous breakdown or just moments where you just want to stay silent and that can be a bit hard. Some people might interpret that as you being rude or not being interested. Xing Wu is also at the event. He's 32 and he has well-managed schizophrenia. He's not just there to meet a partner but also to make friends. I find joy, you know, socialising in different levels. It doesn't have to be a romantic partner. It can be a really good friend, be it male or female. He's been trying to use dating apps to meet people, but he can find that anxiety-inducing. I don't expect people to like me, and therefore I don't put much effort. But online dating, you just think it's sort of like a you know, daily thing you do, like, just like checking news, but it just feels like so numb. And this one is like feels so real, so it's really nice. Aspect Research Centre's Head of Research, Vicky Gibbs, has completed a PhD on autism, and she thinks it would be good to have more social events for neurodiverse people. They miss out on a lot of opportunities because of having smaller social circles, particularly when they're at school, and that's a lot of the time where we learn about the early stages of relationships and dating. We learn the kind of social rules that go around that and the way to go about it from our peers. 
Vicky Gibbs says while learning about social skills is helpful for neurodiverse people, it's important that they aren't pressured to conform so much that they mask their neurodivergence. We have to be very careful that we're not kind of training the autism out of them because you can't do that. You end up just teaching them how to pretend. Back at the speed dating event in Warrnambool, Nicole Putt hopes it's the first of more to come. Do you wish that there were more events like this in regional Victoria? Definitely. I reckon it helps people with disability to actually get out and communicate because being isolated with people with disabilities is really hard and it's so hard to kind of get them out of that isolation. Jack McDonald would also like more opportunities like this to meet a match. I just want someone who understands like what my neurodivergence is like and actually respects me not just for being neurodivergent but just for the person that I am. Jane Bell reporting there from Warrnambool in southwest Victoria and that is Australia wide for this Wednesday. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC listen.